All right. Well, we're continuing on with our series on love through the month of March. Uh, March, wow, through February, excuse me. <laughs> and we're going to be turning to a very familiar passage on love, and you can probably guess, 1 Corinthians 13. Because like I said, last week I surprised all of you. I didn't come and preach a traditional Valentine's message out of 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to do that this week. And this morning we're going to dive into this chapter, but what we're going to really look at this morning is we're going to look at the adversaries of love. And you're probably like, what are you talking about, Pastor? Yes, there are some adversaries of love. Things that will try and come against the love that we are called to have as believers. And when it comes to love, we have a pretty good understanding of what love is, what it means. The Apostle Paul list them right off for us in um, chapter 13. And then last week, we got a better understanding of what it means to love one another like Jesus loved us in the passage that we looked at. We discovered that the love that Jesus had for us and that we're supposed to show, it's supposed to be a sacrificial, forgiving type of love that needs to be visibly seen and felt by all that we come in contact with. And when it comes to loving others like Christ loved us, we need to remember this. It's a commandment. And there's no exceptions to this commandment. As followers of Christ, we are called to love others like he loved us. So this week, since we understand what love means, what it means to love one another, we're going to look at this portion of Scripture, but we're going to look at the adversaries of it. Because we know what love is, so now let's look at what love isn't, and what are some things that come against it. And you better believe that the enemy, the devil, is working overtime to try and take the love that you are called to share to others and prevent you from doing that. Because he does not want the love of Christ to be spreading around. He would rather everybody be living in a miserable state, not loving Jesus and not sharing the love of Jesus, most certainly. So he is doing everything he can to try and creep into our lives and be like, here, let, like, let's see if this will um, trip you up. And the world that we live in, well, they present love in one way, but we know that that way it's quite different from the way that the Bible portrays it to us. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter um, 13, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection 
as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Within these verses, we can identify some adversaries to love this morning, and we're going to focus on three specific ones this morning. But before we do that, I feel it's important to give some background to why the Apostle Paul was actually writing this letter to the um, Corinthian church, especially on love. He was writing to the Corinthian church in a time they were dealing with some major problems. I mean, they were dealing with abuse of the gifts of the Spirit, abuse of the gift of tongues, division within the church, envy of each other's gifts. Could you, can you imagine that for a minute? Believers in Christ being jealous of each other for a gift that they don't have. I mean, and they were impatient with one another. And then beyond that, the behavior that they were showing was just a flat-out disgrace to God. To put it another way, they were a hot mess that needed correction, and they needed correction quickly. And the Apostle Paul came in, and he's trying to teach them. This is how things need to be in order. This is how you use the gifts of the Spirit. This is how things should be done within the church. And then he gets to chapter 13, and he touches on love. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 together. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all, I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He makes something very clear here. You need love. Love needs to be the central focus of not just your life, but also of the church in order for things to move and operate correctly, in order for the spiritual gifts to be used correctly. Because he says right here that otherwise you're just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, it means nothing. So the Corinthian church, they were not operating in love. So what was going on was not scriptural. It was not of God. And he makes it very clear that if love is not the motivating factor, that the gifts of the Spirit can be destructive. When it comes to an evidence of a growing relationship with God, people need to see something from us. They need to see, one, a growing personal relationship with God, they need to see a growing love towards God's people, but they also need to see a growing love towards the people that have not yet found God. They need to see that love emanating out of us, pouring out of us, because we've experienced God's love, so what's holding us back now from showing that to everybody else? Now, when it comes to this chapter in 1 Corinthians, unfortunately, this chapter many times suffers some misinterpretation and misapplication, but I'm not going to dive into that completely. A lot of people will remove it from its context and be like, oh, this is just the Apostle Paul laying out what like, Christian-like love is. To a degree, yes. But at the core, it's laying out, this is the way of love you need to operate in to see the Holy Spirit move and flow through you and through the church. 
And we hear this scripture used in weddings, which is fine. It's applicable there to a, a minister and extent. But we need to remember at the heart of it what it's really telling us. And my hope today is that as we go through these three adversaries of love, once we identify them, we'll be able to confront them head on before they take over and run rampant in our life and prevent us from moving forward in the Christ-like love that we've been called to as Christians. So we're going to focus on three specific ones this morning. The first adversary to love is selfishness. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, um, the first part of the verse. Love, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. That's selfishness at its core right there. I mean, it's flat out rude to be selfish. I mean, we teach our children, you have to share, you have to be kind to others, don't be rude, and keeping things for yourself. That's selfishness in its basic form. Now, if someone were to ask you, what is the opposite of love? What would your initial response be? Your initial response would probably be, well, the opposite of love is hate. And you would not be wrong. But let's go a little bit deeper here to understand why the first adversary to love is selfishness. When we really begin to look at love and realize something, we realize that the very core of love is about giving of ourselves to make the life or lives of someone or a group of people better. So when you think about it, selfishness really does kind of fit into the opposite of love here. Because if you're not willing to lay, like sacrifice your time or pour into somebody else's life out of love to make their life better, well then you're being selfish. So we need to look no further than Jesus Christ and see the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us. It's a perfect definition of unselfish love. He came not for himself, but for everyone else. Luke 19.10 tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is very eye-opening. Even when he was on the cross, we see that he said prayers of love and forgiveness for those who were gathered around him, even the ones that were at the foot of the cross gambling over his clothes. He was praying love and forgiveness over them. While he was dying this death, this criminal's death, he had compassion. He had an unselfish love for his mother and made sure that she was taken care of. He did not have to do that. He could have just hung up there and been like, this is what it is. I'm just, but he made sure that his mother was taken care of. He prayed and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He showed unselfish love as a perfect definition, a perfect example of what we should be living our life up to. When we think of unselfish love, the first thing that comes to my mind outside of Jesus dying on the cross is the basis of a healthy marriage. The basis of any working relationship, whether it be with friends, family members, your children, anything, any type of relationship takes some sort of getting along with others and showing a love to some degree. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm a very big sports fan. I'm very happy this week. The Rams won the Super Bowl last Sunday night. Praise God. Otherwise, I would not be standing here preaching. I would have been mourning. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. 
I'm kidding. But something that stands out to me when it comes to sports, especially team sports, is that for a team to be truly successful in reaching their end-all goal of winning a game, having a successful season, and ultimately winning the championship, each team player needs to play their part on that team unselfishly. Think about it. Think about a baseball team. You have nine guys on the field. Imagine if the right fielder walked onto the field one day, and he's like, you know what? I'm really jealous of uh, the pitcher. I'd really like to do that, so I'm not really going to give my all today. I'm just going to kind of half-heart it and see what happens. Let me tell you, one person on that team is not giving their all. It's going to show because knowing the way things go, guess where every ball is going to get hit that day? To the right fielder. And he's deciding not to show up and play. Well, guess what? But that can be shown in, uh, in other ways as well. And in our selfishness, we realize that at times the more selfish we become, the less happiness and peace that we enjoy. And that the more we get simply leads to, well, give me more. Like wanting more. Because without love and giving at the center of our lives, we become like a lake of stagnant water. The water's flowing in, but it's not flowing out. So if the water can't go anywhere and the circulation can't happen, guess what? It turns into just a stagnant pool of disgusting. We become trapped in our own desire to protect what we have earned and the rights that we have garnered at the expense of others. All the times believing that we should be happy, but guess what? We're not. If, we're, if love is not at the core and selfishness has come in and kind of taken over, we're not going to be happy no matter what we do. Don't become trapped and allow selfishness to take hold. In order for the kingdom of God to grow and move forward, each and every one of us needs to be full of love, ready and able to give and pour out to others when asked. And that looks differently for each and every person. Some of us, yes, we can do a lot more. We are younger. We are physically able to do that. Some of us, you've given and you've poured out and it's evident. But you can still give of your prayers, lifting people up in prayer. You can still give to a certain degree. Don't think just because you've lived your life, that's the end of it. The Lord still is like, you have, a you have something to give. Now, what is the definition of selfish? Well, devoted to or caring only for oneself, concerned primarily with one's own interest, benefits, welfare, etc., regardless of others. And like I said, this fits perfectly with marriage. Unselfish love fits perfectly. There's no room for selfish attitudes in a marriage. I remember on the day of our wedding, I went out to breakfast with my dad. And we were sitting there eating breakfast. And he looked at me in the middle of the conversation. He gave me a piece of advice that I hold on to th to this day. He looked at me and said, marriage is a give and take. And he's right. There's going to be times where my wife is going to be giving, giving, giving to me. And I'm just going to keep taking, taking, taking. But at the same time, I then as her husband, as a godly husband, then need to be able to turn around unselfishly in her time of need and pour back out to her while she takes from me. And there are going to be times in our marriage where it's a 50% split. A professor in college said it perfectly. He goes, your marriage needs to be 
like, an, um, like a, um, the letter A. You're both leaning on each other, connected, but if need be, you could stand separately, if need be. But you're connected at the core. So that's where selfishness, it has no room in our relationships. I want to take this a step further and add that if you're going to have any kind of successful relationship, then be sure to fight the enemy of selfishness to its death and allow the love of God to come alive. Remember, the love of God, it's an unselfish love. What is unselfish love? This is the kind of love that you put yourself in the shoes of others and consider their needs and what they have as well as the many battles that they may have been struggling with that you haven't necessarily taken the time to consider or assist them with. Let me tell you, it's a humbling experience when you do that. It really sheds some light onto things. And it's eye-opening, and it's, a really, it's, it's honestly a freeing feeling because now you're pouring out. You're pouring out into this person. So now the Lord's like, well, I can, pour back, I can keep pouring back into you, and there's room for it to come in. There was a lot of dysfunction going on within the Corinthian church. Selfishness was just the bottom, was just like the basis of it. And the Apostle Paul, he knew that in order for them to be successful, but he also knew that in order for any body of Christ to be successful, that things would need to change, that love needs to be the center of everything. So the second adversary to love that we can identify here in chapter 13 is envy. And a verse came across me this week. James 3.16 tells us, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and evil practice. Well, what's going on in the Corinthian church right now? Envy and selfish ambition. And what is the result? Disorder and evil practice. And I dare say that there are churches in this country where there is envy and there is selfish ambition and love is not the center and there is some disorder and evil practice going on. My prayer is that never becomes the case here at this church. Never. We need to operate in love in everything that we do. An unselfish love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 tells us love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. I came across this illustration this week. Several years ago, there was a group of about 200 pastors that attended a workshop at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And the speaker posed a question to them. He said, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. All 200 pastors raised their hands in agreement. The speaker then goes on to ask them this question. Well, then tell me exactly at what size the precise square footage a house becomes sinful to occupy. Silence fell across the room. All 200 pastors are silent. Finally, a quiet voice spoke out from the back of the room and said, when it's bigger than mine. That is eye-opening. There's so much truth in that simple response. This adversary of love, this adversary envy, it rears its ugly head in the lives of people on a daily basis, regardless of what kind of relationships they find themselves in. People will find it in their marriage. They'll find it in their working relationships. They'll find it with their friends, with family members. Envy will cut down on the desire to rejoice when another rejoices or to weep when another weeps. Instead, what envy is going to do, well, it's going to cause us to rejoice when somebody else weeps 
or weep when somebody else is rejoicing. So instead of being envious of this individual's house or the circumstances that they're in, rejoice with them. Or instead of feeling pleasure because they're going through suffering, mourn with them, weep with them. Romans 12, 15 actually tells us, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Envy is destructive, bottom line. There's some situations in the Bible where envy went unchecked and it prevented love from moving forward and it resulted in some pretty tragic things. Envy led Cain to kill Abel because his offering was not accepted by God as Abel's was. Envy led the brothers of Joseph to sell him into slavery because they were jealous that the dad liked him more. Envy led Saul to make numerous attempts on the life of young David. And left, and left alone to grow, leaving envy unchecked, it became the downfall of King Saul's kingdom and ultimately cost him his life. Envy led the disciples to ask the Lord, who is, going to be the, who is going to be the greatest among us in your coming kingdom? Are you kidding me? With everything that's going on, everything Jesus is doing and teaching, and these guys are over here wondering, well, he talks about this new kingdom he's bringing. I wonder which one of us is going to be the greatest. Are you serious? Even amongst the disciples, the closest people to Jesus, envy was taking root. Envy can enter into a marriage relationship as the husband or wife seems to gain a greater degree of success and prestige. I've seen it happen with people. All of a sudden, like the, the husband loses his job for some reason and he's home, and then all of a sudden the wife is afforded a very wonderful opportunity, takes it, well then the husband resents her. Why? It's a 50-50 split in the marriage. You're both, you, both, you both have a weight to carry. Don't be jealous. Build her up. Build your wife up. Build your husband up and say, congratulations, this is wonderful. Look what the Lord is blessing us with. Yeah, you may be a little frustrated that you're not succeeding at the same rate, but we don't know what God's plan and timing is. We can't let envy take root. Because it's tragic when the marriage relationship is filled with put-downs and cuts into the life of the partner, whether it be face-to-face or just sharing with your friends and your partner hears it from somebody else. So yes, one of love's greatest adversaries is envy. And envy left unchecked can grow like a weed and take over. And it can choke out relationships. It can cause detriment to relationships that were once thriving. So we, as followers of Christ, we need to do the best to rid ourselves of envy in our churches, our lives, our marriages, all of our relationships. Just rid of it. When it comes to love, or more specifically walking in Christ-like love, there is one adversary that, if left unchecked, can be destructive and detrimental to our ability to show love and operate in love the way God intended it. And that is the third and final adversary, and that is fear. And we just did a series on this. 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Jesus came into this world with a heart to reach out and love people who had lived 
lives full of sin and mistakes and continues to love us with the same unconditional love even when we make another mistake because let's face it we make mistakes we're not perfect unfortunately for some people they have this fear that if they make too many mistakes or if they make certain mistakes that it's going to negate their relationship with god i've got news for you that's not happening god is not keeping score he's not keeping score saying well you made the same mistake three and four times that's the end of it or you've made a mistake every single day this week yeah they're different but you know what i have a limit no he's waiting for us to be like lord i'm running in circles here i keep making these mistakes help me and he will he'll bring people into our lives he'll use the holy spirit to convict us and when the holy spirit convicts you you need to listen don't try and run because it only gets worse it only gets worse because when the holy spirit is determined to get a hold of you and find you he will no matter where you no matter where you're running to and the people being brought into our lives guess what give them the permission to say the hard truth and say you know what no you're not perfect you're living in fear of these mistakes move forward some people, it's relationships they've had. They're fearful of getting into another relationship because of hurt that's happened. That's not healthy. We're human beings. We're built to have relationships of multiple kinds. We're built to have relationships with family, friends. We're built to find love, if that's the Lord's will, and find that in the confines of marriage. Don't be fearful because of something that happened in the past. Turn it over to the Lord. Find people to walk with you that can help you move forward and build those relationships stronger. Never be ashamed of asking for help. It took me about, oh, up until two years ago to recognize our marriage is not, isn't perfect and it's never going to be. Because I remember she came to me once and she goes, it was right when COVID started and our church was launching virtual small groups. She goes, hey, they're doing this one called Love and Respect. Now, I've heard of Love and Respect for couples and my mentality of it was only couples that are in like deep trouble and on the verge of divorce go through this i looked at her i'm like um do you got something to tell me i'm like why are we going to do this but the lord spoke to me and he's like you need to reach a place a healthy place in your marriage recognizing that it's not a problem to look for helps look for different ways of building up your marriage and drawing closer to each other and God that was a fear that I had of if I admit that okay we're going to do this it's going to look like to other people that our marriage is falling apart well we ended up doing this small group with like six or seven other couples and it was amazing it was wonderful like the people that we were with their marriages weren't falling apart they were in love and had like things were wonderful but we just had a great time talking with each other building each other up when it comes to your job, don't live in fear of the mistakes that you make. Now, unfortunately, some of us, we work under a boss that if you make mistakes, they're, they're going to criticize and they're going to ridicule and potentially it could lead to a being fired. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully there's room to grow. Rick Warren, he is a very well-known pastor and has wrote many books. 
He made this comment regarding the staff at his church and making mistakes. He goes, I want my staff members taking risk and making mistakes. That means they're being innovative, and it means that they're not afraid to try. Now, I don't want them making the same mistake every week. That means that they're not learning, and well, that's bad. But I tell them, make a new mistake every week. Show the innovation and creativity to do something so out there and so stupid that you've never done before, but be ready to learn from it. For me, as your pastor, guess what? I am 30 years old. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to come up with some harebrained ideas that some of you are going to look at me and be like, what in the world are you talking about? And guess what? It, it may not work. And I'm probably going to be like, okay. That, but at the same time, that's also why I have my wife. She kind of filters me and helps me. But there's a grace that's extended. I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. And that takes a lot because I want to be perfect for you guys. I want to see this church succeed, but I know that in order for us to succeed, I'm going to have to fall flat on my face a couple times. And us as a congregation, we're going to have to trip up a couple times and look at each other and say, guess what? Let's do better next time and move forward. And eventually, we will see fruits come from that. But by taking this approach of understanding that mistakes are okay, to learn from those mistakes, step out on a limb. Now, don't do anything that's going to break the law or that's going to be questionable, but things that may be pushing the limit of what we're used to. Where would our marriages and relationships be if we just simply allowed people the freedom to make mistakes? We would see things move forward. We would see a different dynamic take place. Fear, it's one of love's greatest enemies. But it's up to us to both alleviate fear in other people by living a life of integrity and Christ-like character and showing people that, guess what? There's a fear of God that you can live in, but don't live in, an, don't live in unhealthy fear. Don't let things that are not necessary wrap you up. We can't be people that close ourselves off to opportunities that exist now in front of us and down the road all because we're fearful of what the outcome is going to be. So as I bring this message to a close this morning, I, my hope and prayer is that after examining 1 Corinthians 13 and taking a, a little slightly different approach to it and identifying these three adversaries, selfishness, envy, and fear, that you will leave this place with a better understanding of how to avoid them and avoid allowing them take root in your life and because we see the destruction that they can cause. Colossians 3, 12-14 sums it up perfectly. It tells us, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love brings them all together. It brings everything together. It is the center of our relationship with Christ, and it needs to be the center of all of our relationships outside of that, and it needs to be the center of us as a church as well. Mike, if you want to come up and get ready.
So as we get ready to sing this one last song, I want to invite you this morning. Take a few moments. Find a place, whether it's at your seat, at the altar, wherever it is. And ask the Lord for help to be able to better identify and combat selfishness, envy, and fear. Because here's the deal. They're going to show up. They're either going to show up one at a time. They may show up two at a time. They may show up all at once. But we need to be ready to combat them no matter how they come. And that is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to do that. Remember that none of us are perfect. So the feelings, like I said, they're bound to show up sooner. And don't be ashamed when they show up. Because we're not perfect. They're going to show up. The important thing is that whenever they do show up, be prepared. Be ready to address them and prevent them from overtaking the love we're commanded to have. Chapter 13 ends with this verse. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let that resonate this week. 